This is the Mormon Women Project at www.mormonwomen.com. Hi, this is Meredith Nelson with the Mormon Women Project, and today I am sharing an interview I did with my co-editor, Elizabeth Osler. Elizabeth is a theater maker, activist, and professor living in Brooklyn, New York. She specializes in directing and puppetry and in coaching others on how to tell their stories. Elizabeth is a survivor of childhood abuse and of an abusive marriage, and she dedicates her artistic work to advocating for other victims and raising awareness about domestic violence and human trafficking. She has felt the companionship of the Savior throughout her life, and her knowledge of his love and of her inherent value helped her find the courage to walk away from abuse, to work through her trauma, and to shine a light for others. Well, Liz, will you just tell me briefly about yourself, what you do, and where you live? Yes. Yeah, so I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I have been here just about 12 years. And before that, I was living in Utah, and that's where I spent my 20s was in Utah, and then I was raised in Colorado and Alaska. And what I... I'm a multi-passionate person and do um, have many interests. So I always, it's always a little bit of a struggle to answer that question about like, what do you do? But the short version is I am a theater maker. I specialize in directing and puppetry. And I'm also a adjunct professor at two colleges here in New York, and I teach writing. And so those are really what feel most of my days. So a lot of what you do here at the Mormon Women Project, which you didn't mention, but you're also an editor here at the Mormon I Women am. Project. That's true. <laughs> um, and that does also fill my days. <laughs> yes, it does. I know. Um, <laughs> at the Mormon Women Project and in your directing and mm-hmm. in, your, in your writing and teaching writing, you are a storyteller mm-hmm. in all of these different venues. And, and I'd love mm-hmm. to hear about how those converge and why you, why you are a storyteller and why stories matter so much to you. Yeah, I've really been drawn to stories most of my life. I mean, I always loved being told stories and um, I have early memories of spending time with my grandmother, my grandma, Lara, reading me Hansel and Gretel. And she had the story that she made up that she would tell and I, and I always loved those. So I always loved hearing stories. And then I also have early memories of making up stories with my sisters and my cousins. And some of those would be plays that we would torture our family members by watching. And so, there's, so it's always been a way of which I have made sense of the world and made meaning out of the world. And that has continued throughout my life. So research shows that the, the way the human brain works is that we, it is amassing facts all the time or data all of the time. But the way in which we make meaning of it is through stories. So we tell ourselves stories in order to process what's happening to us. And so how we do that really informs how we are in the world and how we feel about ourselves and others. And so that, as a storyteller, it's been really something that I've been paying a lot of attention to 
lately. And part of it, too, the crux for me about storytelling is that not only does it help us make sense of the world, but that very thing that I was just talking about of bringing us together. And I believe that the shortest distance between you and me is a story. Because I see this in my own life, and I see this as a professional storyteller. If there is a distance between us, I don't understand you, or it doesn't make sense to me, or you're an other just because you're unfamiliar, or even if I'm struggling with you. If I know your story, if I can hold enough space to hear your story or even a portion of your story, it changes me. And I find this over and over again that even if I struggle with someone, once I hear their story, I at least can have compassion. Mm. And so I think in a world that's becoming more and more divisive, that story is an integral part of us finding our way back to each other. It's being able to have the courage to tell our stories and then having the courage to hear other people's stories. That's so beautiful and so important. Like you said, I, I think that not only do stories help us interpret the world around us and have compassion for each other, but they're also what we listen to. Like we actually mm-hmm. will t- will tune into a story, you know, in a way that we yeah. won't to someone lecturing at us or. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it, because it engages us. A good story engages us holistically. It engages our imagination and our, our mind and our spirit and our emotions and even invites us to be creative too as you know as we're enacting our imaginations and so it's that level of engagement that that Mm. keeps us tuned in and seeking after them Mm, so true so as a storyteller and a director and an editor you've taken on an activist role on behalf of victims of abuse Mm -hmm. and Um, Would you like to talk about the experiences in your life that led to this? Yeah, yeah, because you're right. This this has been a very deliberate choice in my life to take on this activist role. For me personally, the causes that I have, I wouldn't say I sought out. I would say my life experiences and the things that happened to me led them to become my causes. So I wouldn't have chosen to be an advocate around domestic violence or human trafficking and even now prison reform. These aren't things I would have necessarily chosen for myself. Somebody said to me once about the need or the characteristic of leaving things better than you found them. I really internalized that in a a major way. And so whenever I, I come into contact with something, there's a deep, like in my soul part of me that wants to leave it better than I found it. And Mm -hmm. so you couple couple that with with this sense of like the things I've known about myself since I've had a sense of self and justice in my belly is one of those things. So I think I've always been an activist and it's just been through my life experiences that have galvanized these particular issues to be the ones that they're the ones that I continually write about and create theater about and dialogue about and read about because of their their impact in my personal life. You yourself have been a victim of of abuse and domestic violence. 
And without needing to tell all the details of your story, would you like to share a little bit about how you journeyed from there to the the very powerful advocate that you are now? Yeah, yeah. Because I do think it is a journey, and I appreciate you you using that word, because when there are things that happen to us in our lives that sometimes we don't have control over, and that profoundly alter us as humans, and even potentially the course of our lives. And, and I'm speaking specifically about traumatic events. And, um, and that puts us in a state of being a victim. And then when we are empowered enough or courageous enough to, to start to do the work we need to to step out of victim, we become survivors. And what I've learned in my own work is that we can then transition from survivor to activist, and that that is a journey. So I grew up in a home that was, that, that was abusive. I, there was emotional and psychological abuse within my, my family that I was growing up in, and then there was sexual abuse from a family member, an uncle, that had a profound effect on my development of how I valued my worth, how I saw other people and how, whether or not I trusted people and how, and for me, what I ended up doing was really becoming quite rigid in my thinking and wanting to do everything right. So I wouldn't get in trouble as a way to mitigate the abuse I was experiencing. And then once I left my home to go to school, uh, I met my now ex-husband and his love was familiar. I was, I was drawn to somebody who would, was also verbally and, and emotionally abusive. And so it wasn't alarming to me when he started treating me that way because I mean, did I like it? No. Did I, you know, try and stick up for myself? Sure. But in the but but at the end of the day, it was it was familiar, mm-hmm. and so I was able to justify some of the behavior or explain away some of the behavior that for somebody who hadn't been abused in the same ways that I had wouldn't have tolerated, like wouldn't have gotten into a relationship with, but because it was familiar to me. Because uh, these things don't happen in a vacuum. I think that's one of the things that really was a real important lesson for me to learn as I began healing, is that all of these things are connected. So I ended up in this relationship. We dated for two years. We were married for six. And then um, on our sixth wedding anniversary, I moved into a into my own apartment, and it took about another almost two years for us to get divorced. And during that marriage, I lost me. I often say, to know me now is not to know me then. I became a shell of a person. I didn't... um, One of the things with domestic violence is that you're trauma bonded and in a trauma bond, you become an extension of your abuser. And, and that was very much true for me. I didn't have a, an identity outside of his wants 
and expectations for me. And I actively tried to to squash um, my own identity and sense of being in order to maintain the relationship, in order to secure what I thought was love, in order to honor the vows we had made together. Because I really genuinely believed that without him, I would be nothing. And so I sacrificed me in order to be connected to him. So what was your transition? I mean, how did you, as a what you call a shell of yourself, mm-hmm. find the wisdom and the power to leave? So there were moments during that, because that it, it now when I look back at that time, because, you know, it's been over 10 years since we were, we've been divorced, is that, so now when I look back at it, in some ways it feels like a book I once read or a movie I once saw. And, and so when I look at it, there, there's so much darkness around it. But when I, but when I you know, really think back and, and meditate into it, that there were moments of, of light you know, like a, like somebody would say something here. Um, I, I I joke that I was co-raised by Oprah because <laughs> I was always watching. I love Oprah so much. But like, but but I and I kid you not, like, watch having her voice in my head helped because she would interview people in these same situations. And here's the thing: I didn't know I was being abused because it was so familiar to me. In fact. Um, part of how I got healthy was through therapy. And when I find, when we separated, I went to a therapist because I couldn't break this trauma bond. Like I couldn't stop seeing him, even though I wanted to stop seeing him. And I went to a therapist and a therapist said to me, you realize you're in an abusive relationship, right? And I was like, no, I'm not. And she she just looked at me and was like, there's so much work for us to do. (laughs) Because I mean, You know, and she had me read, the first thing she had me do was read this book, The Verbally Abusive Relationship. And within the first 10 pages, there's a checklist where it's, I think there's like 20 questions, like, does this happen? You know, is this part of your relationship? And at the end, you know, it says, if you answered yes to, I think like five of them, you may be in a abusive relationship. And I had answered yes to all but one. And so it's so like, so I didn't have, I had to be taught that, that the way I was being treated wasn't normal and that I didn't deserve it. And so uh, therapy was a huge part of that. Creating art helped me find um, my identity again that was so hidden Friends and and family members were a huge, huge part of that. Um, My mom. So my when I was in the like in the stronghold of that relationship, I was completely isolated. So I it got so bad that I wasn't speaking to my parents, uh, which is very normal in a domestic violence relationship is you get isolated in that way. And so when I left him, 
when we separated, I started slowly reaching back out to my parents. And I remember once my mom said to me during that time, because um, I couldn't, I didn't, I didn't trust any of my choices because his his words and thoughts and ideology was so in my brain. In fact, domestic violence is on the on like the Stockholm syndrome scale. Like it is part of that. Like you become conditioned mm. to think the way they think. And so I and and that was part of my work of getting healthy is I had to unhinge my brain from his and identify my own voice in order to do that. And where, but I ne- I didn't I didn't know what was, I couldn't separate my voice from his at the beginning and it was really scary and really hard so I didn't trust any choices that I wanted to make and my mom said to me once um, when I was talking to her about this is she said I identify the two or three people that you really trust and you know want the best for you and only listen to them and and that's literally what I did. I had two girlfriends and my mom. And whenever I had to make any um, significant relation um, decisions, I just went to them. And I was like, here's the situation. What do I do? And then I just did what they told me to do. Mm. Until I was strong enough and got enough clarity and enough distance from him and enough learning that I could start to think for myself. But that probably took me about 18 months before I could really start hearing my own voice and trusting it. So I'm curious about the role that the church played in all of this for you and, mm. and the gospel, your yeah. because you grew up in a member family. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that. How did what you learned at church or what you believed in as part of the gospel roll with you in this journey? Yeah. So my family was in and out of activity all of my growing up. And and that was really at times hard for me because I I I was born with a believing spirit. It it's one of my gifts of the spirit is that I very early on gained a testimony that Jesus was the Christ. Like really really like I can remember at at Five, having a, an experience and knowing Jesus was the Christ and have never and that has never wavered um, in the decades since and so and that's been a real gift to me and even a life-saving gift for me because it has helped me be rooted in that even as these things that were happening to me that questioned my value that knowing Jesus was the Christ and and believing in a loving Heavenly Father helped comfort me during really hard times. And so even though my parents and family were in and out of activity, I always wanted to be active. And there were times where I was the only active member. And so that was a real positive thing for me. And I wanted and I longed for the typical Mormon family that was, you know, they all went to church together, they had family home evening, you know, all of those, they had family prayer study and scripture study, 
and um, and I longed for that. But at the same time, like my mom was always willing to have um, – because sometimes it would just be me and my mom. My mom has been pretty active most of her life. Is that she and I could have really deep conversations and that she would have spiritual conversations with me at any age. And that was one of the things that I really, and still to this day, that I really love about my mom is that she, because she's so curious herself, is that she taught me how to be curious and even around the gospel. And so while it was a real touchstone and, and a foundation for me, I still was able to have some critical thinking around it that helped me develop a testimony on my own that I, I didn't have a family to lean, lean on. Uh, you know, like I didn't have my parent testimony just to hold on to or anyone else. I really had to develop my own. Believing that God knew me and knew um, and that Jesus was the Christ were really helpful for me as I navigated being abused as a child and then in my marriage. Mm. So even when you felt like you had lost Liz, you didn't feel like you lost Jesus. Exactly. Exactly. Very much. And I was still, even when I was married, I had started to work through some of my um, childhood trauma and, and having some real choice moments of, really feeling Christ heal parts of that, you know, going to him in prayer and asking the atonement and having those, that image of when Christ in third Nephi asked for the little children to be brought to him, knowing that he knew those children that were suffering like I was and that he could do the same for me that he did for them was really helpful. That's so beautiful. I've never thought about that before when he says to bring the children to him. that You brought mm-hmm. your, your child self to him, your mm-hmm. memory, and your, mm-hmm. your childhood trauma to him for healing. Mm-hmm. 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 And I still do to this day. Because I, as I, this is, this is a, a, for me, will be a lifelong process as I continue to heal and work through things. Because here's the thing when you've experienced trauma, um, particularly childhood trauma, is that it, it does impact the rest of your life. And, it, and there isn't a magic bullet. There isn't, you know, you just have that one moment and then it is forever fixed. What you learn is tools of how to, to do things better. And you learn how to um, let go of a lot of the pain. But that doesn't mean you don't get triggered. And that doesn't mean that the obstacles don't still manifest you just have a better way of handling them. And so this, this is still a practice of one of my tools that when things get kicked up and it one just happened not long ago where I, that there was a part of me of a younger part of me that I was, that was aware of that was still hurting. And I had to, to take that part of me back mm. and, and use the atonement. Were there any moments in particular that you remember specific incidences that you felt the love of God or that you felt empowered to reclaim yourself? Yeah, yes. Of course, there were small moments throughout. So two things. One, the end of the relationship where I really, you know, had that moment of 
I'm not going to do this anymore. I was so miserable and I was so lonely. And I caught my ex-husband in a lie, but I didn't want to have caught him in a lie because I was living in a house of cards. And if it was a lie, it would all come tumbling down. And I wasn't prepared for that. And so I remember praying, like really fervently praying to believe this lie. I was like, make this lie a truth. And I was left hollow. Like, it was one of those moments where I really felt the spirit, not only didn't feel the spirit, but like a a real absence of the spirit. And it was so clear to me that this wasn't, that this wasn't of God and that there wasn't any way that he was going to say it was okay. And even, and even to give me comfort around it. Like, there was like, no, this is a no. And that really helped wake me up in a way. And so it, it was, I really view that as an act of love, as a, as, as a way of helping me not to, because what would happen is, is I would seek comfort and I would get comfort and then I would stay. Mm-hmm. And in this case, I didn't get any comfort and I got a real hollow feeling and I knew I had to make choices. So there was that. And then the last time I had contact with my ex-husband ever led to a real scary moment. I was living in my own place and he um, tried to break into my apartment while I was in it. And it was terrifying and the police were called and, and he was arrested and there was, and it was one of those moments where a rare moment of me standing against him and telling him no. But the next day I was at, I was living in Salt Lake City at the time. So I went to the Salt Lake City courthouse to file a protective order. And this is what I will say about at least, you know, 10 years ago when I was living there is that I didn't know the resources that were available to me as a victim of domestic violence. There are so many resources available, and it was so, I I don't even know the words to be able to walk into that courthouse terrified, not knowing what to do, and just showing up shaking with my um, police report and having a group of people who were trained to do this take care of everything for me. I just had to tell my story, and then they walked me through. Somebody stayed with me, and they gave me a victim's advocate that allowed me to become empowered. And it was a real, it's a real gift. It was, it was such a transformative moment. But there was a moment when, so there's a, it takes all day. And there was a lot of just, like, waiting in a waiting room while they did paperwork, and then they would take me to this other, you know, to have things signed. So it was a whole process, but somebody was with me. And there was this moment when I was sitting in the waiting room, just waiting for the next step after being there for a few hours and really overcome with gratitude that this was a resource for me and that they were helping me when I was ready for help. And I remember thinking, how is this possible? Like, how does this exist? And I realized in that moment that these things existed because women before me who were either killed or maimed, that their advocacy work had led to this. And I felt a deep 
kindred sisterhood with them. And in that moment, I made a vow to them that from that moment on, I would use my voice to bring awareness to domestic violence, that I wasn't going to be quiet and I wasn't going to be still any longer. And that this was my way of showing gratitude to them. And it really was a vow that I made with them. And in that moment, it felt sanctified. I felt the spirit so strongly in that vow that it has been very much at the core of how I continue to do this advocacy work. Because at times when I get frustrated or tired, I remember that vow and I remember what those women did so that I could have that resource. And it fuels me to continue to do this work. So how have you used your art and theater in your advocacy work and in your own healing process? Or, and what other means have you used to be an advocate? Yeah, for me, it's a lot about awareness. And I think it's probably because I was so in denial. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, like I, I was a master at denial in order to stay in the relationship that I did and, and like willfully in denial. And so for me, a lot of what my work is, is about bringing awareness is about um, people who are either in similar situations as I was, who are currently in abusive situations to have an awareness of, Oh, Oh, when I'm treated like this, that's not normal or that's not okay, or this is actually not my fault. And also to bring awareness to the people who have relationships with people who are in abusive relationships in order to have how to have more compassion and how to, and what, you know, what do you do when you know somebody's in an abusive relationship? Um, So it's more about, for me, it's about awareness and starting a dialogue around that. And so the ways that that happens is, by creating theater pieces, either that I devise myself or uh, meaning that I write or create with an ensemble or um, directing shows that already exist. So um, there's a beautiful play by Victoria Nalani Calavo called The Story of Susanna that's about women in a domestic violence safe house that I've directed. I've directed the vagina monologues. I've directed the triangle factory fire. And this one was to bring more awareness to, to labor trafficking and those that make our clothes. Because today there are more people enslaved today than ever before in recorded history. It's an $86 billion industry. And this horrifies me. You know, the more that we seek after cheap clothing, we are giving our money to slaveholders, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and so by creating works of art that, that bring this to people's awareness does that. So that's how it was with, with theaters, right? So using the story in order to show what that looks like so that an audience and, and us theater makers, so including the actors and the designers and the, and the creative team, that we start to have a, an awareness around how these things impact us and how that looks. And then on the other hand, I'm also a visual artist. And so it's also how I, I, 
whenever I get really triggered or angry about a social cause or, or a situation, I often think in terms of visual art of how to work out my emotions around something. And so by creating sculpture, like I've created a, a penny sculpture. It's a bodice, a female bodice, with um, which I've wired pennies to that I call victimless crime. And it's a commentary on the way that we treat prostituted human beings. I think we, we throw them away like we do pennies. And so all of the pennies were, I shouldn't say all, the vast majority of the pennies that are part of the sculpture are reclaimed. I've, were pulled from the street as I've just been going about my life or friends have gone about their lives. They'd pick up these pennies and I've wired them to, because it is, because I want people to have an awareness and start having a conversation about these things. That we can't be in denial. Has it been hard for you to kind of stay in that story so much? Like when you're directing these pieces or creating this art, as someone who has been a victim, is it hard for you to be there in that space? And how do you continue to heal through that? Yeah. Oh, you know, that's such a great question, Meredith. Because um, I don't. And so I, ah, I think the reason why it's not hard, at times it can be exhausting, but it's not hard. And I, I think the reason that it's not is, well, let me say this. I have done enough mental health work and spiritual work around these issues that I can go back in, that it's not re-traumatizing to go back in. So I think that being said first is um, because I think I couldn't have told the stories I'm telling now why I was trying to, like, break my trauma bond. Like, I couldn't have. It would have been re-traumatizing, and it may have even thrown me back further into denial. But it continues to to heal those wounds because it, I feel more, it further empowers me. It helps me understand it from different points of view. And what it always feels like is I feel like, yes, I travel into that darkness, um, but I bring light with me that I'm bringing, I'm shining light into the darkness. Hmm. Right. And I don't feel that when I leave it, that, that, that darkness has actually diminished my light. I feel like I'm even brighter for having done it. Hmm. And I think that that's part of the gift of, of doing the hard work of healing is that you, is that, or I should say it's one of my gifts. Let me put it this way. One of my favorite quotes ever, like maybe needs to be on my headstone if I have a headstone, would be by Peter Levine, who is a trauma specialist. And he says, unprocessed trauma is a living hell. Processed trauma is a gift of the gods. Hmm. And like capital T truth, gift of the gods. Processing my trauma has, has helped me get closer to, to my divine self. And, and part of that divine self is the ability to, to stand in dark places and shine light. That is so powerful, Liz. Especially when I think about how really our job here is to become like the Savior, right? We're here mm. to become like Jesus. And, um, yeah. and he descended so low so that he could shine a light in darkness and really yeah. if to become like him we really do have to descend 
and yes, and eventually be the light, you know. But um, but I can see what you're what he's saying by it's a gift of the gods to go through something like this and to to process it and to be able to say it is finished, you know, yeah. one day eventually when we're perfected. So yeah, um, I love that. I wanted to ask, um, there's been a lot of talk recently in the church about sexual abuse and ecclesiastical mm. roles. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I want to I hear your story of what kind of support you received or you wish you'd received from your local church leaders through all of this. So I, I didn't, particularly around my own sexual abuse, I never told an ecclesiastic leader. So I was never a child or an adolescent who who told. That was a deep, dark secret that didn't break in my family until I was a young adult. Um, and so I, I never have had quite that experience, but I have, so two things. So let me stay with this, and then I do have a couple of thoughts around my own experience with leaders, is that... I I know one of the big pushes now in the church is to allow a minor to have an adult in the room when meeting with a bishop, particularly if it has to do around sex and things like that. And I am a huge believer in that. I support that 100%. And even when I was young women's president, um, our bishop was very sensitive to that. And there, and one time I was in the, one of my young women asked me to be in the room as she talked with the bishop. It didn't have to do with sex. I don't even actually know why I was there. It seemed pretty benign, but my presence helped her, I think, Mm -hmm. just be vulnerable or, or whatever. So I think, I think that that's really, really important. Anything that we can do to empower the individual, the individual meeting with the leader is really important. And also anything that we can do that can mitigate any opportunities for abuse. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, that's just horrific. And it does happen, you know, unfortunately. That I, you know, I do believe these individuals, when they say that these things have happened to them, you know, that I'm very much aware of the fallibility of our leaders. What about you? Do you agree? How do you oh, feel about that? I do. No, absolutely. hundred <laughs> percent. I, I mean, I feel like there's nothing to be lost in that, if it, especially if there's if it's just an option on the table. Um, so a, a youth that wants to meet alone may do so, you know, if they mm-hmm. want, if they choose to. But um, there's just nothing to be lost in that extra supportive presence in the room with them. Someone that they trust who um, who does have some stewardship, you know, over them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What about around the time of your divorce? Did you mm-hmm. have support from a bishop or did you seek that support? I did. So I personally have had really beautiful experiences with, with bishops. And again, because my family was really inactive, I shouldn't say, we weren't, you know, our, our activity was in and out. I was never oriented towards the bishop as a place to go for advice. Like this is something I've had to learn as an adult. And so it still to this day isn't my first place to go. Um, But when I was getting divorced, um, I went to my bishop in my family ward, who I really admired and liked and trusted. And 
I told, and he was one of the first people that I told and, you know, and said like, these things are happening. I, I, um, and I was too scared to say divorce. I knew in my heart I wanted to get divorced, but I was too scared to say to him and particularly a spiritual leader. And I wasn't married in the temple. We were married civilly. So I didn't have to deal with any of that. But I remember saying to him, you know, telling him what happened and him just listening and being so kind and so supportive of me. And then he said, well, what are you going to do? And I, and I wanted to say get divorced, but I couldn't. I was too afraid. And, and that word felt too big for me. So I said, I don't know. And he looked at me and he said, you do know what you need to do. You just need the courage to do it. Hmm. And I said, well, I think I have I've moved and I think I have to be released from my calling. I was a Relief Society teacher, which is the best calling in the church. <laughs> um, hands down, my favorite calling. He's like, you know, I said, I, need, I, I think I have to be released because I've moved out. And he said, you're going to be going through a lot of changes right now in your life. And you need to be somewhere where people know you and love you. And so I'm not releasing you from your calling. You can live wherever. But, but, you know, but you're still one of our Relief Society teachers. And that was such a gift because he was exactly right. That was really a choice moment for me because I felt supported. And again, right, this is, again, that time when I couldn't trust my own thoughts to mm-hmm. have somebody say, you know, it's really about courage here and you'll find it, which this also reminds me a couple of years before I separated me and my ex got into a particularly nasty moment and he had said some really hurtful and mean things to me and I left and went to my mom's house to, to get away from him for a while. Uh, and for a while, meaning like the rest of the day. And and it was one of the few times that I admitted to my family who was acutely aware of the situation but didn't know how to approach me because I'd get super defensive. So it, was, so it was one of the rare times when I went to my mom and was like, this isn't working and I'm in pain and not hyperprotective of my ex-husband. And she said to me, what's the worst thing that could happen to you in this? And I said, getting divorced. And she said, no, losing yourself. Mm-hmm. And so it, you know, so it was like these little, as I was trying to find my own self, it was like these little seeds were getting planted. It's like, that was planted, this bishop saying, you just need the courage, got planted. The things my therapist was saying were getting planted until I could really just have the courage. I needed to really sever it and, and take ownership of my own life. Liz, thank you so much for sharing your story and especially sharing the role that, that the Savior has played Um, as a partner in your healing. And I I hope that this interview offers somebody some healing and maybe some clarity on their own situation or how they can help somebody else. And maybe in the short time that we have left, you Mm -hmm. could say, you know, what would you say if you had one minute (laughs) to say, (laughs) to to, to, to talk to somebody who knows somebody who is suffering through an abusive relationship? How do you be a support Yeah, it's about being a place of comfort and a place of listening and not to fix. And this is the hardest part of it. 
Mm-hmm. Because you can't force somebody out of a relationship that they're not willing to, they're not ready to leave, even though you can see it destroying them, even when you can see that their life is being threatened, all of those things that we want to just yank them out. And there's this, you know, this language like, why doesn't she just leave? Because she can't for, for, for so many reasons. And so when we have people we love and we care about and we see them in this place, that so it's two things as far as that, re- because if you do, if you try to yank them out, you will be cut off. Mm-hmm. And, then you, and then you have no influence. So it's about telling them that they're loved and, that, um, and to just walk with them as best you can. Um, the other thing too, so you're doing that with the individual. You're walking with them. You're loving them. You're, you're being a comfort to them. And you're just, just be there. Be there. Be a resource. So if they do have moments, that, that you are somebody who's safe for them to reach out to um, mm-hmm. because you have proved that you will walk with them. So there's that. Um, and any moment that you can say, this is not your fault, you don't deserve this is really powerful language. The other thing to do is to take notes mm. because the person is in it and so they're, they're living through it. But as an outsider, you can, you can say on this day, this happened on this day. And if it's physical abuse on this day, bruises here because later and hopefully there will be a time that they do leave that your record will help them get the legal support that they need Mm. so walk with them and keep and keep a record and I love the example of your mother and your bishop that that what they did was was remind you of your identity and that it matters Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. call out your courage and help and so that you feel like you can make the choice that you need to make yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and so and and to anyone who who I'm going to steal another moment and really speak to anyone who in listening to this might recognize, might be able to identify with me in some place and, and to say to them that this isn't your fault and that, um, that nobody deserves to be treated without dignity, that we are all entitled to love and that we are all entitled to dignity and we're all entitled to peace. And we're all entitled to live our best selves. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not hard and there aren't struggles. But, but that's different when you're being abused. That's a big difference between just regular life struggles and when you're being abused. And, to, and that there are so many resources available. There are so many resources available. And to have the courage to reach out to them. So I have one last question. And that is... Yeah. Um, I mean, you tell your story so well, <laughs> and I know that what you do is you get peop- other people to tell stories. That's just your job yeah. in life yeah. right now is yeah. to bring out people's stories, but, but that's a process of learning, right? How to do it. Yeah. Like, were you always yeah. so good at this or, <laughs> or is it something um, that you've learned and, and, and how do we learn and why should we? Ah, those are great questions. <laughs> I would say I had, there was an innate part of me that, like I said earlier, that was drawn to it. So there was some innate talent for me. I absolutely had to learn um, what makes for a compelling story. So like beginning, middles, and ends. And, so, and there's so many um, lovely 
books out there and TED Talks and um, resources of how to be a good storyteller, to do a little bit of a plug, my company, Life Echoes. I hold workshops on how to tell your story. I'm not the only one who does this. There are other um, people that can teach you how to tell your story. I would say the key parts of it, and if this is important to you, the places to start is one, to choose to live an authentic life and find out what your what your voice is. Because here's the remarkable thing. No one, no one is going to have the same mortal experience that you have had. No one. No one will have the same experiences and understand things and see things the way that you have. And so, yes, there are thousands and millions and, you know, countless stories out there, but there's not your story. And so I think this is the other thing that people get daunted by, where they're like, why do I need to tell my story? This story already exists. But yours doesn't. Your story doesn't exist. You're the only one that can tell your story. And if you don't tell your story, it is lost. There's that, um, this beautiful quote by Alex Haley, I think is his last name, that um, the death of a human is like the burning of a library. It's so true. If you don't tell your story, it never gets told. And we need it. We need to hear each other's story so that we can build strong communities and can build kinship and belonging. And, and that is an integral part of being disciples of Christ. It's building up Zion. And, the, and, and, a, and one of our tools is, like I said, is, is telling our stories. Just start. And, you'll probably, and you may or may not get it right or wrong at the beginning, but you just, have to, you just have to start. And the more you tell the story, the more you'll learn. Start telling it with your voice. Start writing it down, journaling, whatever, but start recording your story because we need them. We need everybody's story. If you enjoy this podcast and the hundreds of interviews with modern Mormon women in our online library, please share with your friends and consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.mormonwomen.com to help us fund interview transcription and website support.